You ever have a false picture in your mind of what you're capable of? You know, when you think you can do something, like you clearly think in your mind, I can, I can probably do that and I can probably do that very well. Um, but it only turns out you can't. Well, for me, it's dancing. That's one of mine. Uh, I, I, I have this image that I should be able to move my body in alignment with the rhythm of a song. Just doesn't happen. In fact, my really only exposure to the possibility of dancing, besides, you know, when I'm cleaning the house or maybe Vicky and I might dance in the kitchen every now and then or something like that, but it's only at wedding receptions. And so at wedding receptions, it's a common type thing where, where they have those group dances. You know, if they want to go old school nostalgia, it's the hustle. If they want to kind of do the, uh, the traditional uh, kind of thing, it's the chicken dance. There's, uh, there's often YMCA. So in my mind, I think that I could probably get out there on the floor with the rest of them and, and actually participate in a way that would be fun. Uh, but my YMCA, uh, I think I'm closer to some set of hieroglyphics. Uh, and even if I do get one of the letters somewhat correct, it's not in the right order. Yeah, that's, I see a hand out there. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, it turns out just thinking we can do something doesn't mean we can actually do it. However, studies have shown that self-image is nonetheless a forceful uh, power in our lives. It plays a forceful role in our lives. So our perception of who we are, even though it can't produce skills we don't have, but our perception of who we are plays a forceful role in our lives. So let me ask the question, who... um, uh, who are you? What, what is your self-image? When you think about yourself or when, when you look in the mirror, when you go about your day, are you aware of the kind of self-image you have um, for you? I, uh, I did some uh, uh, research through the Cleveland Clinic, and they provided some material with regard to uh, what, uh, how, the, how we develop our self-image, the, the role that it plays. And um, they were explaining that even when we're very small, just beginning in life, that the relationship we have with uh, our parents, the, um, the experiences we have, the influence of relationships throughout our life, that all these things go in to help form the self-image that we have And what we find is that people tend then to talk in terms of, well, does a person have a positive self-image or a negative self-image? You can imagine that those kind of qualifiers can be relative descriptors and that those things can actually change. What does it mean to have a positive self-image? It can be different in one generation than the next. What's valued by one generation can be not valued at all by the next. And in fact, not just by generation, but by context. What a positive self-image would have been for somebody in Nazi Germany would have been very different than a positive self-image for someone who was in the Allied forces. Well, the passage we have uh, today um, uh, is going to be talking about self-image. 
you know, and we could ask, is there a standard for self-image? Is there an authoritative voice for it that, that can speak into it, that it's not just a relative thing, but that we could trust that voice? Well, just so you know, we're in a, in a church. <laughs> I'm a pastor, and we're studying Scripture. So the answer is yes. Um, uh, there is such a voice. In, in fact, it does come to us in our text today. And it's about clarifying um, who we are so that we would get our identity right, that we would, get, we would be able to see ourselves rightly. Our series is called Living Faith. In the book of James, we know that there's that teaching that faith without works is dead. And so we want a living faith, and so a faith that is being worked out in this world, that has fruit with it. In fact, we want to live our faith day in and day out. One of the things in the uh, book of James is that as James wrote it, he would introduce a topic and then go and talk about a couple other topics and then come back to that topic. So today we're actually going to be taking a look at a topic of being uh, uh, both poor and wealthy. And he's going to talk about riches. And then he's going to go on and talk about some other things and some other passages. But at least twice more, he returns to the subject of poverty and wealth. Um, But here at the beginning, he focuses on our identity and our attitude and our self-image And I can't say whether this was intentional on James' part, but what it effectively accomplishes is that if we get this part right, if we pay attention to this part and allow God to use this text to see ourselves as he would have us see um, ourselves, then the teaching that we're going to encounter later in James will be a lot easier. But if we buck against this teaching, if we dismiss this teaching, the other teachings will be that much harder. So with that in mind, he basically primes the pump and we're ready to read the scripture. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to James chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. And we'll uh, look at the scripture together. James 1, 9 through 11. Hear the word of God. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises and its scorching heat, with its scorching heat, and withers the grass. Its flower uh, falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. May God add his blessing to the reading of this word. And may God add his blessing to our time together. All right, so our text has been referred to um, before as the great reversal or that it describes the great reversal. It's actually a theme that appears throughout the Bible that the unjust rich will get their comeuppance and that the pious poor will be elevated and um, uh, made whole. In fact, we could go back and trace it all the way through the Bible. We don't have time for that today, but two places in the New Testament I'd like to just draw our attention to. One is with Mary. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. So in Luke chapter 1, as she sings this poem, as she provides this poetry, this poem that's assigned to to, to Mary, that we find these words in it. And this is from Luke chapter 1, verses 52 and 53. Listen to how she puts it. "God God has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich 
he has sent away empty. Wow. If, um, if you're a person who's uh, experiencing poverty, you might read those and, and, and be able to just exalt in God in that moment. God, in Jesus Christ, you're accomplishing that. Now, if you happen to be uh, among the wealthy, you might hear that and go, okay, Mary, we get it. <laughs> That's a nice poem. Let's move on. But then Jesus brings up the topic. And he tells the parable of a rich man in Lazarus. And this is from Luke 16. And he tells a story that there was a rich man and the rich man was just eating whatever he wanted to and just really filling himself and had all these wonderful things to eat. And there was this extremely poor man, Lazarus, who sat at the gate and had sores all over his body. In fact, he was so destitute that the dogs would come and lick his wounds well, Lazarus dies. The angels come and they take him. They take him to the side of Abraham. The rich man also dies, but he goes to Hades. And he's in the midst of the flames. And, and he can see far off in the story. He can see far off. There's Abraham with Lazarus. And he calls out to Abraham, Abraham, send Lazarus just to dip his finger in the river and to quench the flames, to put out the flames that the torment was so much. Abraham tells the rich man, listen, you had your full, you had your fill in the life that you lived. You filled yourself and, and, and now you're in torment. Lazarus knew none of that and now he is receiving his fill in his glory. So then the rich man goes, well, can you at least... Um, send someone to go and tell my brothers so they don't end up where I am. And, and, and Abraham says, listen, all of this is in Moses and the prophets. And that's the part we want to focus on. All of this is available. This is being taught to you. This is part and parcel of what God has been teaching all the way along. So when James comes to teach this, these, this set of verses, he's standing on a rich tradition. He's standing on tradition going back to Moses and the prophets. He's standing on the tradition that Jesus taught. And so let's take a look then. We'll begin in verse 9. And James first says something to those who are impoverished. He writes to the person in poverty. Let the lowly brother, and here we know it's let the lowly brother or sister, let the lowly brother or sister boast in his exultation. Um, there's a book by John Stott. Uh, he first wrote it in 1984 and it went through a number of editions and it was most recently updated in 2006. Um, but the name of the book is called Issues Facing Christians Today. And in there he has a section on, on wealth and poverty. In, in his explanation of poverty in the Bible, he, he identifies four kinds of, uh, four classifications of poverty in the Old Testament one of them we can refer to as the indolent poor. That's the word that Stott uses. And by this, we're describing the people who are in a position of poverty because of their own decisions, of their own making. Uh, so the Bible calls out the sluggard, the lazy person. The Bible calls out the fool, the, the people that are chasing things that, that don't pan out and they end up in an impoverished position because of their own choices, their own foolishness, their own laziness. The second kind is the indigent poor. 
The indigent poor are impoverished not because of their own choices, just simply because of the context of life and maybe even because of the sins of other people, the choices that other people make. And so the classic in the Old Testament are the widows and the orphans. In that economic system, if you were a widow, you were at great risk. Where would you get your income? How would you be provided for? The same would be true with orphans. And so they would be considered among the indigent poor. And sometimes the very system itself, the very economic system resulted in some people, and we know this in our own culture, the very system means that some professions are not going to make as much as other professions. And, and if you happen to grow up in a certain zip code, the, the challenge of getting out of that zip code is a lot harder than it would be for, for others in other zip codes. If there's the indolent and the indigent, the third classification is the powerless poor. The powerless poor. And the Bible talks about uh, the importance of making sure that everybody gets justice. Everybody gets the opportunity to have justice provided for them. That the scales should be uh, um, uh, right scales. That they shouldn't be cheating toward the advantage of the wealthy. And, and so there are people who... Um, simply because of their state in this world, they don't have voice and power to be able to speak on their behalf. And so others with power to speak for them. So there's the powerless poor. And then the fourth category is the humble poor. This would be where Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the merciful. The, the people who understand that their identity is, is simply an impoverished person before God, dependent upon God. All right, so these four classifications. You know, Unfortunately, uh, at least I know during my lifetime, it's, it's often the case of the wealthy where they consider most people, if not all, but most people who are impoverished that it's their own fault. If they just did this, if they just worked harder, then they wouldn't be poor. Um, that's unfortunate because the Bible, although it acknowledges, it doesn't say that that's the reason that everybody's in poverty. The Bible acknowledges that there's these other kinds of poverty. So James is not writing to the indolent poor. He's writing more to those who are indigent, who are struggling. Their context is reality. And if you remember the context, James wrote to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. And we understand, at least um, as you look at it, if James is one of the first writers of, of the New Testament, uh, then um, he's writing maybe right after that event in Acts 8, where it says that there was persecution, the Jewish Christians had to leave Jerusalem and they left their income and their homes and they had to go live in other places. So James is writing people because of context, because of their, 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 um, uh, their humble poverty, their, uh, their loss of income, uh, their powers, powerlessness. And so he writes to these people and he says, let the lowly boast in his exultation. We know what the Bible says about who we are in Christ. You're a child of God. Jesus called his disciples, you are my friends. You're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You have gone from death to life. You are the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. And so he writes to them, um, uh, exalt in these things, boast in these things. This is who you are, not what the world says. You may feel poor. The world may point fingers at you, but would you boast in what God has accomplished in your life? 
you know, I happen to be one of those people who grew up and I didn't have a lot of trophies. I didn't, I didn't have one of those shelves that I saw in other people's homes where, where kids just had sh- shelves full of trophies. Some my cousins were great swimmers. They had, they got, um, uh, ri- 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 ribbons for their swimming and they had whole walls full of these blue ribbons and red ribbons and yellow ribbons. But as people grow up, it's interesting. We still collect trophies. They just don't fit on shelves. <laughs> so we collect certain kind of cars we buy or certain kind of homes we own or, or certain kind of food that we like to do or cer- certain kind of experiences we like to add to our lives. And so maybe this morning you're feeling like you don't have much on your trophy shelf and you look around and you feel like everyone else does here's what god wants you to know you are valuable apart from what's on your shelf your shelf does not define you if your shelf is empty know that you are full because you are claimed by jesus christ in christ you are a valued treasure then he turns his attention to the rich person. And the scholars are split on this. About half of them say this is a Christian rich person and others say this is a non-Christian rich person. I fall on the side that this is a Christian rich person for some things in the text and also because of what else James teaches on with regard to uh, wealth and poverty. So going with the idea that this is a, uh, a rich Christian, we might ask ourselves, are we rich Christians? You know, sometimes we can feel like I'm always just $5,000 away. Or if I just had $10,000 more, then I'd be okay. And, and no matter what income level, we all think, well, if I just had $10,000 more, then it'd all be fine. Well, we might be a rich person. We could actually pick up on, I don't know if you ever heard of Jeff Foxworthy. I think he was a comedian some years back. But um, he had that thing, uh, um, if you were this, you just might be country person or what, whatever it was, right? Um, a redneck, that's what it was. So we might ask ourselves this stuff. If you haven't used the city bus in the past year, you might just be a rich person. If you haven't been able to pay your, if you've been able to pay your rent and mortgage every month, you might just be a rich person. If you have access to multiple grocery stores in your zip code, you might be a rich person. If you regularly have enough food to eat every day, you might be a rich person. If you have medical care, you might be a rich person. If you take a vacation from time to time, you might be a rich person. I looked it up. Do you know that the latest data that I could find was actually back in 2013 by the Gallup people, but the medium worldwide income is $10,000 US dollars. That means half the world lives uh, in a household lives on less than $10,000. So we could also say, if you happen to make more than $10,000 US, you might be a rich person. And if that's the case, and maybe we want to pay a little bit more attention to this part of the text. Here's what James says. Let the rich person boast in his humiliation. Now, when I was growing up, uh, my first nine years, I lived in Minnesota. And one of the things we did a couple times is that we drove over to Wisconsin to the Apple River and you could rent inner tubes. And uh, back then they had inner tubes in cars and trucks and, and, and so in their tires. And that would be about the size of it. And you'd get in one of these inner tubes and you'd float down uh, with all the other people. Well, there was this one section with rapids. And so everybody's enjoying floating down. And then there was this sign, if you want to avoid the rapids, get out now. And people would get out of the river, not everybody, but 
a lot of people get out of the river and they'd walk down, they'd walk down alongside the river and they'd get back in after the rapids. And maybe that's how we feel as rich people when it comes to whatever the Bible says about rich people. <laughs> we come to the rapids, we go, okay, all right, um, I'm just going to tune out for this part. We'll catch up on the rest of the text later. But what if the rapids are the key time of the whole trip? You know, we've been talking this year about expecting to grow. What if it's that God would have us grow? If we happen to be rich people, what if God is saying, listen, this is the time. I want you in this text. I want to help use this. I want to use this text to help transform you to be more like my child. So with this in mind, let's not avoid the rapids. If we happen to be wealthy people, let's not avoid the rapids. What, what, um, uh, James here provides is uh, he, he compares it. He says it's, it's like something. He, it's like a flower that, that um, you know, when the sun comes up and, and the heat and the, and the wind of it that comes up and it, the flower falls and it, and it fades away. So is the rich person in the midst of his pursuits. There's something about wealth. When we track it through the Bible, there's something about wealth. Uh, in fact, we can say two statements about wealth and how, why it causes this degradation in people. The first is this, world's wealth is transitory. It's undependable. The flower fades, wealth fades. It goes away, we can't trust it. Markets go up and down, uh, disasters happen, countries have power and then they don't have power. Uh, corruption takes place. And even if all those things don't happen and even if we happen to live in a phase of life where everything's working uh, to our own advantage, we know at the end that not one penny carries over into death. It is just all gone at that point. Somebody else will make use of the wealth. So we know that the world's wealth is transitory and undependable. Jesus tells the parable of that, of that rich fool that, that goes, you know what, I got so many crops, I'm going to build all these barns and fill them up, and then one day I can just eat, drink, and be merry. And then, of course, it comes that on that night, his life is demanded of him and he has no enjoyment of it. It's that underscoring, world wealth is transitory, undependable. The second thing is this, world's wealth poses a spiritual threat. The world's wealth poses a spiritual threat. That, that line in verse 11, so will a rich man fade away in his pursuits. In the midst of his pursuits, we can fade away. Here's how it works. You know that those two great commandments, to love God with all of who we are and to love our neighbor as ourselves? Well, when we focus on world wealth, it has a way to seep into our relationships such that we, ha we struggle to fulfill those two commands. With regard to the love of God, um, uh, financial wealth um, uh, gives way to all kinds of idols. The idol of our own comfort the, the idol of our status, the idol of our power, uh, the idol of our identity. And for some of us, we're so used to our income level and our behaviors that we don't even know the kind of idol that these things have become. Jesus had that teaching. Listen, you can't serve two masters. You can't love both God and money. So for us to be able to look and say, wait a minute, how much am I loving money or the things it provides, my comfort and my status, my identity? 
Of course, then with the other commandment, to love of neighbor, here's how money works into that. We even see it in our systems. Wealth separates. We see it. City planners. Hey, let's, let's provide the nicer homes over in this section and the not-so-nice homes over in this section. Let's allow for bigger lots over here, and let's, let's allow for greater density over here. And, and there's a separation that takes place. And people of a certain income, we begin to shop at certain stores, and other people, they have to shop at stores within their... And all of a sudden, there's this separation that takes place. In fact, so much so that we feel uncomfortable in each other's home. Not only is it in the separation, but it's in the protection that we begin to vote for policies and for people who enact policies that protect my level of income and my, my way of life. And, and we stop thinking about what might happen to somebody else, but we begin to focus on what would happen to me because wealth has the ability to be toxic. Not that it's toxic itself, but it has the ability to be toxic. James calls our attention to it. Now, James' solution is not for people to divest of their income. James' uh, word here is not to sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. He simply says, boast in your humiliation. Boast in your humility. There's something about coming into relation with Jesus Christ. Paul knew it. Paul came from a place of power. But he could say, I have been crucified with Christ. Now, I know we've made crosses into these little jewelry symbols. But in Paul's day, to associate, associate yourself with crucifixion, there was humiliation in that. He said, I have been humiliated with Christ. In Philippians, when he writes about all the, all the accolades and all the position he had, he would go on to say, this is all rubbish. He would call himself a slave of Christ. He exalted in his humiliation. You know, there's this story, I've heard it a number of years back, but maybe you've heard it in a sermon or some other place as well. It's that um, when Otto von Habsburg uh, died, he was the last crown prince, uh, crown prince of, of the Austria-Hungary um, uh, realm. And, and so there was this age-old this, uh, age uh, uh, formality that they go through as part of the funeral. There, so when he died, and this was in 2011, I believe, and um, so they did this whole funeral procession, and they end up at the doors of this church where he's going to be uh, entombed in the, in the basement of, in the floor in the basement of this church. And um, uh, so the herald uh, that's part of the procession, he comes and he knocks three times on the door. And the prior behind the door asks, he asks the question, who desires entry? And the herald says, um, Otto of Austria, once crown prince of Austria, Hungary, royal prince of Hungary and Bohemia. And he goes on, there's 12 of these large, large, they get longer as he goes through it, large titles. And even at the end of it, he goes, etc., etc. And the prior says, we do not know him. And then the herald knocks three times more. And the prior goes, who desires entry? And then the herald begins to recite all of these civil um, celebrations of, of who the individual is. And he goes on, Dr. Otto von Habsburg, president and honorary president of the uh, Pan-European Union. And he goes on and on and on about all these civil recognitions of him. 
And the prior then, of course, says, we do not know him. The herald knocks three more times and the prior says, who desires entry? And the herald says, Otto, a mortal and sinful man. To which the prior says, then let him come in. And maybe we've been marching through our life in a position of privilege and of wealth. And we think that our identity just is something because of all of that. And James calls us, when you knock, do you know, do you know of your humiliation in Christ? Would you claim it? Would you, would you boast in it so that you know exactly who you are? James wants us to know who we are. If we are seeing ourselves as a nobody, can we say, I am Christ's. I belong to Christ. Can we exalt, can we, can we boast in what God has done through us, for us through Jesus Christ? And if we come to Jesus, we live in this world and we happen to be wealthy people, can we come and say, I am Christ's. I have been crucified with him. I am not a status. I am not the power of my money. I am a slave of Jesus Christ. This morning, I uh, happened to follow um, uh, Henry now, and there's a, a, an Instagram account that draws from some of his writings. And even this morning, I found this, um, this saying of his. Laying our hearts totally open to God leads to a love of ourselves that enables us to give wholehearted love to our fellow human beings. Whether you're rich or poor, would you lay your heart open to God this morning? If you need to see yourself in the light of what Christ has accomplished for you, may it be so. If we need to see ourselves in terms of what um, our, our identity is apart from all that the world says, may it be so that God would work his love in us and through us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that James cared enough about people, about our faith, that he would write and provide this encouragement that we would ha be able to see ourselves rightly so that we would live rightly with you in this world. God, you know the idols we worship. You know the self-image that we have of ourselves. Speak your truth, the truth to us that we would see ourselves rightly today. We give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.